Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. We have a special guest for you today, and we're going to be talking about a subject that we've never talked about before on the podcast. We're going to be talking to radio host Dennis Prager about his commentary on Deuteronomy. He's been publishing for some time now commentaries on the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Book of Moses. And of course, Prager himself is a practicing Jew and comes at these things with a different perspective than Christians in certain instances. But honestly, ever since I picked up his first one on Exodus, they are incredibly fascinating because they provide new insights. And I especially found his commentary on Deuteronomy very interesting because, to be totally honest, all of the minuscule rules and stuff in there are not something I'd ever really focused on. So before I get to the conversation, which we had by phone, I'm going to just give you a a bit of a rundown of Dennis Prager's biography for the handful of you who may not know who he is. He's a nationally syndicated talk show host heard across the United States on nearly 400 affiliates. He also has listeners around the world. He's the founder of PragerU, the most viewed conservative video site in the world with a billion views a year, more than half by people under the age of 35. He's also a bit of a renaissance man. He's the New York Times bestselling author of nine books on subject as, subjects as varied as religion, like the one we're going to be talking about today, happiness, morality, the left, Islamism, and America. He is also a lifelong Jewish theologian, and the Rational Bible was the first volume of his five-volume commentary, and they reached a number one bestselling nonfiction status. He periodically, interestingly, conducts symphony orchestras, including twice at the Walt Disney Concert Hall, where he most recently conducted the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Dennis Prager has traveled to more than 130 countries and has lectured on all of the world's continents. He's an expert on communism, the Middle East, the left, and did his graduate work at the Russian and Middle East Institutes of the Columbia University School of International Affairs. He taught Russian and Jewish history at Brooklyn College, and he is known for his clarity. The motto of his show is, I prefer clarity to agreement. One of his key passions, which comes through not only in this interview, but in his entire corpus of work, is that he's passionate about preserving America, the West, and fundamentally the Judeo-Christian value system. He has a very personal bond with millions of his listeners, which is why over 500 listeners travel with him to Israel every other year, and many have traveled with him everywhere from Antarctica to West Africa to Vietnam. Finally, there are no hours on American radio like his weekly happiness hour, ultimate issues hour, and male-female hour. Dennis Brager, in short, is one of the most incisive, interesting, and intelligent commentators of our time. I've very much enjoyed his work. In fact, he's one of the few radio hosts that I consistently find to be interesting on such a wide range of topics. And he agreed to an interview on his most recent book on Deuteronomy. This is that conversation. So I guess the the first question, when I saw your first commentary on the Torah, the first obvious question is, you're known as a conservative commentator, radio host, you know, you deal with politics. How did you get into producing these massive and really beautiful books, I might add, on the Torah? My, My first passion is the Bible, specifically these first five books of the Torah, which are the basis of everything in the Old and New Testaments. I mean, truly everything, the Garden of Eden, creation of the world, the Ten Commandments, love your neighbor, love God, the Exodus, it it is all in the first five books. And I think Christians will find it very interesting, if they don't already know, the book that Jesus cites the most is Deuteronomy. 
and the book that the founders of the United States cited the most, including all secular books of the Enlightenment, was Deuteronomy. The, the book is astoundingly rich. But again, to answer your question, people have forgotten, because we live in the secular age of foolishness, that wisdom needs to be taught just like physics or math. People think they get wise just because they're living. Some people do, but we all have to learn wisdom. And, and the earlier you teach it to children, the better. The book that was used in Western civilization was the Bible. That was the source of wisdom. People read Shakespeare, Plutarch, Plato, of course, but it, it was the Bible. The Bible-free society we have created in the last more than half century has produced a society of fools. And the most foolish institution in the country is the most Bible-free and God-free, the university. This is my remedy for human evil. This is my vaccine, except this vaccine works. <laughs> now, one of the things that, that, that struck me when I was reading through it is you record this great exchange in the introduction to your commentary on Deuteronomy with Alan Dershowitz, where you note that when Alan Dershowitz finds something he disagrees with in the Torah, he assumes he's right. And when you find something you disagree with in the Torah, you assume you're wrong. And I wonder, you do such an interesting job going all the way through of deriving these rational and applicable lessons from verses in the Bible that I'll have to admit that, like the genealogies, I often read through quite quickly. Does it take any faith then when you get to a, something very difficult and you say, this book is obviously far more wise than you? Is that where faith plays a role? The only element of faith, and I guess it is an element of faith, is faith that was earned. The Torah is so ingenious. It's so beyond what people would have come up with 3,200 years ago. My assumption is that if I study enough, I will make sense of it. And, and that has happened in every case. There is one example in Deuteronomy where the numbers of Israelites who left Egypt as recorded in the Torah doesn't strike me as feasible. Moses could not have spoken to millions of people. I'm a total believer in miracles, but I'm not a believer in the irrational. So that's why I call it the Rational Bible. And I write, I said, I don't have an answer to the problem of the number of Israelites given in the census. And I write it, I admit it, I don't have an answer. It doesn't shake my faith in any way, but I'm not going to lie to the reader and make up some excuse. As it turns out, I'm now working on the Book of Numbers. I didn't obviously do it in order. And I have come up with an answer to the problem of the numbers. And fittingly, it'll be in the Book of Numbers. <laughs> Maybe that's an answer to the question that I thought of while I was reading not only through the book, but also the introduction when you talk about how many years you've studied this. If you could meet Moses, what's the question you'd ask him? It's a great question. I have, it's one of the few I have never been asked. And I, off the top of my head, I would ask him a few questions. One, I'd ask him if he had been happily married. We don't know much about his marriage. And I would ask him what, if any, relationship he had with his children. And I would ask him why didn't seeing the promised land suffice? Why did he feel he had to enter it? Now, taking the applicability of a book like Deuteronomy, and of course, Deuteronomy is one of those much derided books, mainly because it's probably difficult and then people should spend a lot more time delving into it the way that you have, is you've noted many times now that you don't think that America can survive without Judeo-Christian values, the values that are found in these books. From the vantage point of, of 2022, why do you think those values are so necessary for their survival of the greatest nation on earth? Because they are what made it the greatest nation on earth. This country has a trinity, as I've said for decades, 
and I, I, I didn't make it up. I made up the term, but I didn't make up the components. On every coin and every bill are the American three principles. Liberty, e pluribus unum, for many one, and in God we trust. The Declaration of Independence asserts the only reason we have inalienable rights is because the Creator gave it to us and not human beings. It was a given that this country was founded on what we call today Judeo-Christian values, and they really were. This is the one truly Judeo-Christian nation, because the founders were extremely Old Testament-oriented. Franklin and Jefferson, who were not as Christians, in other words, they didn't believe in the Trinity, but they were cultural Christians and they were lovers of the Bible, including the New Testament. They designed a seal for the United States. Anyone listening to this could look it up. It shows to the Israelites in the wilderness with God leading the way with the pillar of fire. It was a given to them. In fact, the country was founded as the second Israel. Israel was the first Israel and America was the second Israel. They would be shocked at the ignorance of the Bible in contemporary America. They would be shocked that the country was ruled by people's hearts rather than by the wisdom of the Bible. They would be shocked and they would be right to be because we're a society that its, its most secular institutions, the universities, are the ones that came up with the idea that men give birth. You can't get more absurd than that. You mentioned biblical literacy, and I'm sure you've read all the statistics on both in America, the UK, elsewhere of people who don't recognize fundamental figures or so sort of cut off from their inheritance that the the common knowledge that would have existed for centuries has just now vanished. And obviously your biblical commentaries are one antidote to that, and I believe they're either the most or close to the most widely read Bible commentaries in America. And then there's, ironically, the the massive success of Dr. Jordan Peterson's series on Scripture, where he takes a kind of a psychological aspect of it. And I know you've had conversations with him before, and I wondered, do you, in your view, is he contributing more to biblical literacy by publicly grappling with the meaning of Scripture? Tremendously. In fact, I thank God for his existence. He's a gift. His public struggle, look, the man started out secular. He was a secular professor of psychology, and he came to realize the lacuna, this Grand Canyon-esque size hole that has been left in society morally and, and intellectually because of the, the death of religion. And he's truly publicly grappling with this. In fact, I am one of six people he is asked to study Exodus with him for the Daily Wire. Two and a half hours, eight sessions. It's very intense. And that was only the first half of Exodus. We're doing the second half next year. I love the fact that he's another voice saying, folks, this stuff is too important. You can't, you can't ignore it. Now, I was wondering what you thought of the number of people who are belatedly reaching the same conclusion as you and seem to struggle to find their way back to faith. So you have Douglas Murray, who calls himself a Christian atheist and says he wishes he, he could believe it. I interviewed Neil Ferguson, who basically said, I don't believe in God. I wish I did, and I think people should go to church. You had Roger Scruton, who struggled with belief, but went back to church in the hopes that practice would make perfect. You increasingly have these people who have reached the conclusion that you have, which is that a West cut off from its Judeo-Christian heritage is one that will shrivel and die, but can't seem to grapple their way back to it. Do you think your books are an anecdote for that, or how would you address those people who want to believe, but, but don't seem to know how? That I do believe. It sounds a little self-aggrandizing, but I have to answer honestly. 
that's exactly what I believe and I have proof. And that is people could read any number of the 4,000 views on Amazon of just the first two volumes. Right now, the third volume is published just now. And Deuteronomy, I didn't go in order. And how many people have written, wow, you know, I started out an agnostic, and i got to say, this guy makes a very powerful, rational case. So I have a phrase which you'll find of interest, I think, and that is, I don't believe in the Torah because I believe in God. I believe in God because I believe in the Torah. In other words, God has earned my belief. The five books are too great to have been written just by men. I have so many examples. My favorite law in Deuteronomy is virtually unknown to people, so I'll cite it to you. And it's hard for me to believe that men came up with this. If you go to war and you're victorious and you see a woman you want, you cannot touch her. What you can do is you take her home and you don't touch her for 30 days while she mourns her mother and father, her family. After that period of mourning, you can, in fact, marry her. And that is the only way you can even touch her, if you marry her. Now, if anyone knows about war, they know how much rape is a part of war. I don't believe that these ancient Israelites in the late Bronze Age would have come up with that if it weren't ultimately divinely offered or inspired. And so introducing these things to people, obviously, when you frame it like that, I've read that before, and I never thought about it the way you just said it. It really is revolutionary, especially considered in the context of the times. And looking at the numbers, the shift towards secularization, a question I've wanted to ask you for quite a while is as the statistics on biblical illiteracy sort of skyrocket, what we're also seeing skyrocket is the rate of people who are identifying, say, as LGBT, I think 24% of, of Generation Z. And so is it a detachment from scriptural wisdom that's making everybody kind of go crazy? What would your explanation for the last 10 years be? Is it that simple? The left creates chaos. God creates order, and the anti-God create chaos. That's my answer. People ask, what do the left want? Well, aside from power, they are simply a force for chaos. As I point out in Genesis, what God spent the six days doing, and I don't necessarily take the six days literally, but that's the terminology and I'm perfectly happy with it. He is not creating most of the time. The vast majority of the time he's making order out of chaos. I consider the second most important verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-2, and all was chaos. The earth was chaos. God makes order out of chaos, and the left makes chaos out of order. Looking from the vantage point of a particularly chaotic time politically, what are some of the key signs of hope that you see? I wish you didn't ask that, but I'll answer it. <laughs> of course there are signs of hope. I mean, the very fact that the people you named are coming to the realization that we're doomed without a return to the Judeo-Christian value system, which is rooted in the Bible, and the Bible is rooted in these five books. Of course, that, that's a great source of hope for me. Douglas Murray is infinitely more important to a religious awakening, even though he's an atheist, than most people who believe in God who have no clue as to how significant the Judeo-Christian value is, the system is to the survival of the West. I'd much rather have an atheist who appreciates the significance of God than a believer in God who doesn't appreciate the significance of God. Most people who believe in God don't believe in God in a serious way. Most people who believe in God believe in a celestial butler. And that's not the God of the Bible. 
when you were finally putting all, like all of these books together, and then especially the most recent one, which it's one of the ones I found the most interesting simply because Deuteronomy is the book I knew the least about, I realized as I started reading it. And I know there was a transcription of 30 hours of your lectures and like an enormous amount of work went into this. Kind of going through all of these things that many of us have just read over for years without really thinking about what they meant. I wondered what in your studies is the thing that surprised you the most about the book of Deuteronomy, excepting the example you gave earlier about the wartime rules. Oh, I see. Well, that didn't that didn't surprise me. That is the law. If I can, if I have to cite one to blow people's minds, I'll tell you one. The way in which the Torah protects the woman whose husband claims that she misled him and wasn't a virgin. It sounds primitive to modern ears, because we don't generally give a damn about virginity. But I explain at length, and I think it's incontrovertible what I, what I have done uh, purely on logical grounds of the text. It did everything possible to protect the woman, even essentially enabling her parents to cheat. Hmm. <laughs> I know it sounds yeah. odd, but it's not odd at all. If one reads my five volumes, obviously only three are out, but one would find that the protection of women, there's a ceremony that sounds, again, primitive. If a man thinks his wife has cheated on him, not about virginity, but just cheated, had adultery while they were married. In the old days, you could kill your wife. You could certainly divorce her just on the suspicion. Women have been killed throughout history because the husband was jealous. So... There's this procedure in the in the Torah that, well, you, you, you just take bring the woman to a court, and they give her a potion, and if her belly distends, then she really did commit adultery. Now, I don't believe any a woman's belly ever distended. I think it was a ceremony to get the guy back with his wife. <laughs> yeah, that's not something you'd pick up too quickly. The final question we've talked about, about biblical literacy is about literacy in general, because one of the things that we see is sort of with the roar of the digital age, with social media, with people who can read but choose not to. The Bible, reading through your commentary on Deuteronomy, it seems simple, but you put decades of work into explaining each and every one of these passages. And sometimes I wonder if a heritage can be lost simply because people aren't willing to expend the effort to engage with it. What do you think are some of the biggest threats to biblical literacy and literacy in general in the years ahead? Exactly what you said, it, the effort, the idea that life is work, and I don't mean work for a living, though that's part of it, is alien. It's just supposed to be easy, and people don't understand, you know, another, it's not, it's not in the Torah, but I think Psalms, those who sow in tears reap in joy. Mm -hmm. If you don't sow in tears, you're not going to reap in joy. But that's an example of wisdom that was taught to me when I was in third grade. But it's not taught in a secular school. There is no wisdom in secular school. None. Zero. It's anti-wisdom. It's foolishness. Kids should be taught. Life is tough, kids. you got to work on yourself. you got to fight your nature. How many kids are raised with the basic biblical principle that human nature isn't basically good? Every religious Christian school and religious Jewish school teaches that. So you know you have to spend your life fighting your nature. How many secular kids know that they have to fight their nature? I really hope your listeners will get the Rational Bible. It's, it's meant to be life-changing. If they don't believe me, let them read the reviews of Genesis and Exodus. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my interview with best-selling author, 
Jewish theologian and radio host Dennis Prager. We hope you enjoyed this show. If you want to hear more conversations like this, head over to lightsightnews.com, click on the podcast tab. There you can subscribe to the show, listen to future shows, and listen to some of the past interviews we've had on similar topics. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in this week, and we hope you'll tune in again next week.